Hi, I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. We're married, and we like to do a lot of different things together. But what got us together initially was that we love to eat and we like to drink. And we love to learn how our favorite foods and beverages came to be. In each episode of this podcast, we'll talk about something delicious and answer the question, Where did this come from? Well, it is officially the first day of summer today. June 2-1-2-1-2021, yeah. First day, happy summer solstice. Happy summer solstice. (laughs) Oh, man, it's, uh, time has been weird the last 15, 16 months. Yep. We are in second, second COVID summer, right? Second COVID summer. I mean, things are way different. Right. Right now. Well, last summer at this time... We were still, like, trying to figure out, like, okay, we can see people outside. Right. But, like, maybe we still have to be wearing masks. Yeah. But maybe we don't. Yeah. We don't know. So I think we saw, like, we saw some people last summer, but not very many. I feel like we've already had a more social summer this year. We have. I mean, playing it safe, obviously, too. But the weird thing I find weird about this is, like, people texting you, like, oh, we should uh, we should go grab a beer. Yeah. And you're like, like oh. Yeah, we can do that. We, sh- we should do that. We can do that now. Yeah. That's absolutely right. So making plans is something that I haven't been good at, obviously, because we haven't needed to. I know. Um, so yeah, it's, it felt, the statement felt wrong for a second. I was like, I hey, should we go get a beer? Is that okay? It's okay. It is okay now. It is okay. And in uh, in honor of the first day of summer, this week we are talking about maybe one of the most summery things of all, and I'm fired up. Because it's another wine episode. Yeah, we haven't done wine in a while. We've done it. We did the wine in America episodes oh, yeah, like a month true. or so ago. But yeah. today we are talking about the history of rosé, mm. which I'm thrilled. Laura Crisp, can, Laura can back me up on this. I'm wearing a pink shirt. I'm drinking rosé. Yes. I'm a fanboy right now. It's this Saturday is, night. This is so happening. Yes. Getting crazy over here. It's uh, where did this come from after dark? <laughs> yeah. It's actually not dark yet. It's like. <laughs> Yeah, anyway. It's like 7 p.m. But anyway, welcome back to the show, everybody. Welcome back to Where Did This Come From, the podcast where we talk about all things delicious and their origin stories. I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. And like we said, it's all about rosé this week. And it's it's a pretty it's a pretty sizable topic. So I think let's, yeah, let's, let's jump, jump in. in. It's hot outside. It. I got frosty rosé by my side. I'm ready to go. <laughs> so I always found this really interesting that, you know, and we'll go through some of this too. Rosé for a period of time was definitely cast aside. Right. Yeah, it was like the the swag. swag. It, it was That's yeah. It was it was, was uh, kicked to the curb. But the truth is, many of the first recorded wines in history were actually rosé. Hmm. Rosé is maybe the oldest wine on the planet, um, and it was uh, it was made because people would just water down field blends. They would just grow their grapes, crush them all together, red or white. And oh. then water down their wine. So wine back then was a little bit lighter in alcohol. Okay. And it's because in ancient Greece, it was considered civilized to dilute your wine. Oh. Yeah. And there yeah. was a, a widespread belief that only barbarians, rapists, and murderers drank pure, uncut wine. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It's actually the Spartan king, uh, Cleomenes I, who uh, re- reportedly... Was driven to insanity and eventually committed suicide in a prison cell. Oh, it was claimed that he was drinking. I know, right? It was claimed that he was drinking undiluted wine, and that's what led to his downfall. Oh, yes. Thanks. Oh, 
It's the gateway. It's the gateway. To the yes. dark future. Gateway to the dark future. Um, so yeah, like I said, during harvest, the workers would just crush red and white grapes together with their feet and they would kind of hang on to these suspended ropes. It was like basically a rope between two posts and they would hang on to them and they would just stomp on grapes so they wouldn't fall over. Um, red and white together. And the juice would then be placed in these large ceramic containers for fermentation. Well, I guess at that point, they wouldn't have, like, huge vineyards, like, right. mass production. So they were just like, we need to crush all the grapes to make our juice. Yeah, they are making, I mean, basically making wine for themselves at that point. Yeah. So um, they were aging them in huge ceramic vats, basically, um, which actually resulted, because it's very porous, it's very open, resulted in a slightly oxidized style mm. of wine back then. So it was lighter. It was more oxidized, so I think slightly more like dessert wine, things like that. You know, it was slightly off dry, um, so it definitely was had some sweetness to it, uh, but super tannic from the contact with the um, the skins, the seeds, the stems. Everything was crushed together. There was right. no like semblance of removing like anything. Yeah, those parts. Yeah. Um, so really far from the delicate, you know, softer, brighter rosé that rosés. we know today. Yeah, exactly. And eventually the Greeks and the Romans, you know, down the line explored separating grapes by color. And that's when red and white wines were actually born hmm. years later. But yeah, at first it was just cool. grapes are grapes. Crush them. Crush them all. Make them into alcohol. Water Pink it wine. Down, drink it. And those early examples of red wine were very similar. Like it was super tannic, really hard to drink. Um, so for some time, the general preference was for the less harsh, lighter colored rosés that were out there. And it became the, the beverage of choice for centuries in that part of the world. Now, in the 6th century BC, the Phoenicians brought grapevines from Greece to Massalia, which is what is modern-day Marseille in, in southern France. And the wines that produced there, again, were field blends of red and white together, so naturally light in color. Uh, but these really kind of pleasant lush wines soon were talked about all around the Mediterranean region. Mm. So rosé has always been known for the most part. It was widespread even back then. Right. And when the Romans landed in Provence many years later and they kind of took over the show, they'd already heard about these wines of Massalia. And they, they took these wines and used their, their roads, right? Their really connected trade routes that they had created all over the world and made them really popular all around the Mediterranean. So as a result, that's why France, in the south of France specifically, is considered the epicenter of rosé even mm. to this day. Because mm -hmm. it really did start there and branch out around the world the good stuff really started yes. there i mean we had the we were very blessed to be able to go there a couple of years ago yeah it was so fun unbelievable a lot of great rosé was had on that trip oh man rosé everywhere um now in the 19th century so 1800s french tourists started to flock to places like the cote d'azur which is where we had the pleasure of being in southern france and after a long day of playing petanque which is mm -hmm. kind of like uh, French bocce, if you will, and swimming in the sea, they would all relax with a nice chilled glass of rosé. Mm -hmm. So we were doing the Which right thing when exactly we were there. exactly what we did. <laughs> yes. Every single day. How suddenly these really simple local wines started to spread and spread and spread and then became the symbol of glamour, leisure, and summertime mm. that we still know to this day. Yeah. And for many people, rosé also became, I'm going to try my hand at French here, which is always daring, but uh, Vent de Soif, oh no, sorry, Vent de Soif, so I can't pronounce it. It it translates to wine to quench thirst. Mm. Uh, and so it's, you know, just a, 
uncomplicated Bonds, wine yeah. that you drink while cooking or as an aperitif before dinner. Mm. Just something that's just and refreshing. Easy to, easy to drink, refreshing. Yes. Exactly. Thirst quenching beverage. Oh, it really is. Throw it out with a beautiful cheese board mm. or just with a glass and you're good to go. <laughs> Actually, many parents would even serve it to their children as a treat. Hmm. So Jacques Pepin, the probably one of the most famous French chefs still alive today, says he first drank rosé when he was about six or seven years old oh growing up in France. Uh, quoted, he says, it was wonderful. My father would start putting a tablespoon of rosé in a glass of water just to change the color a little bit and get a taste of what it is. You have to understand that back then there was no soda or anything. There was water mm -hmm. and there was wine. That was it. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Cultural difference, you know? I know. I could see that. I mean, a at little, least it wasn't like straight rosé. No. A little, little kitty wine cooler, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Now, not that long after that, the image of rosé started to tarnish a little bit. Mm. And this came with the creation of two specific brands of rosé. One was called Matus, and the other Lancers. And there were these both off-dry, that's kind of putting it pleasantly sweet, basically, uh, pink wines from Portugal. And Matus was created by Fernando Van Zeller Guedes, and that hit the market in late 1943, and was one of those just like overnight success stories. It just mm. took off immediately. This pink, bright, pink, sweet, sweet wine. wine. Yeah, exactly. Now, around the same time, an American wine merchant named Henry Behar sailed to Portugal to visit the Jose Maria de Fonseca estate there, which is mostly known for fortified wines, dessert wines, things like that. And while he was there, he tasted a wine called Faisca, which was this slightly sweet pink wine. And he found it really refreshing, which makes sense because he was drinking fortified wine in the heat of <laughs> Portugal all day. Um, but he brought the wine back to the United States and started just distributing the brand that would soon become known as the icon Lancers. So Matus and Lancers. Now, since the name Fisca was considered to be way too close to fiasco um, mm. for the American market, Behar instead named it after his favorite Velasquez painting, Las Lanzas, hence the Lancers. Okay. Now, slowly people began turning their noses up at the quality of these wines over the next 20 years or so, probably. Okay. So Matus and Lancers, sales of Matus dropped. So to revive- Were they like cheaply made or like very. people just- Okay. Very. So people like were catching on to the fact that it was- I think there was just- Not high quality? Like anything else, it was a- it, it hit so hard so fast, it was a fad. Yeah. That when it first hit, so- Naturally, those things will peter out over time, but but yes, it was um, it came and went pretty quickly in that stage. So to revive the brand, Matus started doing these really compelling advertising campaigns in the late '60s, uh, featuring people like Jimi Hendrix. Even the Queen of England was featured in these, mm, and they so ran. They were using the celebs. Yeah, it was the It's the got milk thing, right? But for alcohol, <laughs> so yeah. and they went all over the UK, and then they eventually leaked worldwide. And then it was instantly popular again <laughs> because celebrities were on the poster. Right. Um, so it was, yeah, it was wildly popular and cheap and looked like you were drinking. It came back. It came back. It came back. Now, after the 1974 revolution, when democracy returned to Portugal, which all of us here in America learned as children, um, the United States rushed to import 20 million cases of Matus Rosé in the hopes of keeping their established relationship with the brand really strong. 20 million cases. It's a lot of cases. It's a lot of cases. It's a lot of money. 
Uh, Americans just didn't want to lose their their fix. Yeah. So it was a really specific audience that loved rosé, though, right? It wasn't... Um, the fine wine drinker. It wasn't the traditional wine drinker. And yeah. Kermit Lynch, who was a very big name in wine, um, big importer of wine, started his, uh, his famous business in the 1970s with a very small shop in Berkeley, California. And he was quoted as saying... When I opened my business and I grew up in wine, rosé had a terrible reputation. In the serious wine community, people did not drink rosé. It wasn't considered a real wine. It was just something made from the rotten grapes that could not go into the red. So that's how people in the wine world thought of rosé at that time. Yeah. Hematus and Lancers changed the way people thought about rosé entirely and made the public think that all pink wine was inexpensive, sweet, commercially made in bulk, which I thought for a long, long, long time. Yeah. Uh, it just had a really bad connotation in my head for a long time. And there's even phrases that popped up from that time um, that kind of, I guess, not fondly, but fondly referred to uh, uh, the good times you'd have by drinking these wines by calling that the uh, Lancer is poisoning or <laughs> Matus hangover. Mm-hmm. And that's how you'd feel the next day from drinking too much of those wines. Yeah. It was just pure Super sugar, sweet. basically. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think, I don't know what it tastes like. I mean, you can still get Matus. It's still made. I don't know about Lancers, but the way I think of it is, like, alcoholized Kool-Aid. Right, That's yeah. what I think of. Yeah. Now, in the States, even before that, there was, there was rosé. Like, high quality good no. rosé. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> was, but there was rosé. Um, so George West of <laughs> El Pinal Winery in Lodi, California made what's documented as the first white Zinfandel in 1869. Mm. Now, the Viticultural Commissioner at the time found the wine impressive and began to advocate for Zinfandel's use outside of red wine. Mm. But for over a century, it really gained, uh, or struggled, I should say, to gain any kind of um, traction in the wine world. So now we're in the 1970s, like the early 1970s, and Bob Trinchero of Sutter Home Winery, which we all know the name Sutter Home now, Mm-hmm. created a white Zinfandel as a byproduct. Uh, and he gave his first experiment a nickname of uh, El de Pedri, which translates from French to English as Eye of the Partridge. Hmm. And you're right to have that face. Uh, yeah, Why? that makes no sense. <laughs> so the term actually dates way back to the Middle Ages in Champagne, where the name was given to pink wines as a reference to the pale pink color of the eye of a partridge struggling in death's grip. Oh, Gross. Yeah. So naturally, the U.S. government was not happy with that. They were like, this is nasty. Uh, You can't call it this. Uh, He insisted that they, or should say they, the government, insisted that a description of the wine be printed in English on the label as well. So as a result, the bottle also said in very tiny print, a white Zinfandel wine. Hmm. So that's where that name white Zinfandel really kind of came from and started getting on wine labels. Okay. So it wasn't until... Yeah, so way it was a hundred years after White Zinfandel was determined to be a wine type. It wasn't like a or like a sanctioned wine type, but right. the first noted white, white Zinfandel or off red, if you want to call it pink Zinfandel, yeah, was first made in the states. But it wasn't until this time that it really started taking off. Okay, actually, it wasn't until 1975 that it really made a splash at all. So the story that the winery tells is that a stuck fermentation occurred, and the wine's sugars didn't fully convert into alcohol. 
and the resulting white Zinfandel was slightly sweet, so instead of trying to fix the problem or relegating the project to the tasting room, because up until this time, white Zinfandel was only sold on-premise mm-hmm. at Sutter Home Winery in the tasting room, because it was experimental. At this point, they realized they were really onto something and opened the floodgates. With the accidental sweet With wine. the accidental sweet okay. version of it, yeah. And released it to the world. So Sutter Home White Zinfandel was born, mm-hmm. a.k.a. the billion-dollar accident. Just exploded. Americans absolutely loved it. I mean, it was really similar to Matus and Lancers, so it kind of makes sense. Right. And at the time, those were still very popular, or in that resurgence of popularity. So now, Americans could also support their local farmers while drinking a wine that they really liked. Mm. And White Zinfandel spread like wildfire throughout the 1980s. It was huge. Yeah. And then it, like, it definitely fell from grace. (laughs) At some point. Is that your next? It did fall from grace. Um, In the 1990s, the world of rosé and the world of fine wine were still completely mutually exclusive. They were not the same thing. They were very much one you fell into one side or the other. Psalms would actually not even serve a bottle of rosé because serious wine drinkers would never ask for it. So why bother putting Mm. it on the wine list? Mm -hmm. Rajat Parr, who's a, a famous sommelier in San Francisco... And was working as a psalm in the 1990s in San Francisco, uh, was quoted as saying, no one cared about it. No one thought about it. No one drank it. At the time, there wasn't rosé made for the purpose of being rosé. A winemaker maybe had some leftover grapes or something that didn't ripen, and that was what the rosé was. No one was going out and saying, I am going to make a great rosé. Interesting. Yeah, and that was not that long ago. It was 30 years ago. Yeah. So it kind of was relegated to being served in cafes and cheap restaurants. Right, yeah, it wasn't like yeah. a true wine drinker's it drink. It wasn't a wine drinker's drink. Um, so it kind of remained on the fringes for another 15 or 20 years or so. Rosé in general. Rosé in general, yeah. yeah. So in the early 2000s, rosé's popularity really started to build in the States. Um, always like, had been... Like real like real rosé or like... Yeah, White like Zinfandel re- rosé. Like actual rosé. It's like confusing to talk about them in, I know. The, in the same way. I, it's kind of like a square rectangle, rectangle square kind of thing. But yes, uh, actual rosé. Okay. So resorts and beach destinations around the U.S. started stocking French rosé heavily okay. at this time. So, like so like real wine rosé. Yeah, rosé in France has never waned in popularity. Okay. In the States, it was... Definitely up and down, but real rosé had never really come into popularity Not the, until like, this time. Not incredibly sweet American stuff. Exactly, or yeah. Matus or Lancers. Yeah. And then in the kind of late 2000s, if you will, celebrities like Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, Drew Barrymore, all started getting in on the action with their own rosé production, too. Mm-hmm. So then you got celebrity endorsement behind. Not always at wineries okay. in the U.S., but... Okay. Like uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt owned a winery together when they were married in in France. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and the name escapes me right now, but yes, yeah. they had um, a Miraval. Miraval mm. Rosé, I believe. Um, actually, pretty decent, pretty decent rosé. And they started pumping out some sparkling wine in the last mm. couple of years, too. I think one okay. of them still owns it, or they still own it together. And But they brought in legit winemakers right, in to France to do the work. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, I think it was already a property beforehand. Yeah, they just bought it. Yeah. Um, Now, in August of 2014, panic struck. The Hamptons ran out of rosé. Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Shut it Uh, down. Shut it down. The Hamptons are canceled. The Hamptons are canceled. The white party is done. Mm -hmm. No more. 
uh, it was definitely definitive proof that Americans are nuts about rosé. Love rosé. Which, honestly... The good kind. The good kind. I'm yeah. thrilled about it because it's just a fantastic beverage. So the baguette, the beret, rosé, all adopted into American culture. Uh, the beret probably shouldn't have been because I don't think anyone in France really wears berets anymore. Um but the charming nature of this beverage is really hard to, like, just deny and cast aside. Yeah. It's internationally domestic. It's just improved with quality over the decades, especially here. Yeah. Um, and it's no longer considered, like, this guilty pleasure you need to be embarrassed about. Right. Well, I think there was, like, I don't know. I feel like I didn't have, I don't know, I always associated rosé with, like, White Zinfandel, or, like, super sweet, kind mm-hmm. of, like, crappy, cheap stuff. Yeah. And it wasn't – I think it, I think it wasn't until we worked at Atlantic Fish that I, like, actually tried real rosé and was like, oh, this is a game changer. It is. It so is. summery and delicious. It's and, just it, – and honestly, like, I know we were talking about earlier how, you know, it was originally considered this – this great aperitif wine and just kind of pop it and drink it uh, chilled at the end of the day after a long day. But rosé is one of the most versatile wines out there. For pairing. For pairing with food. It's just, it has the, a lot of times the the fruit profiles of a red wine, Mm. but the body uh, and bright acidity of some of like the really crisp white wines out there. And it, it goes with almost everything. I mean, I think most notably it goes with any wine in the world. People would ask me this in restaurants or when I worked in wine retail. I'm making X for dinner. And maybe that was like a, a, a southern French dish, right? I'm like, well, what should I have with, for it with wine? I'm like, well, good rule of thumb with food and wine is if you're making food from a certain region, get wine from that region if you can. Mm-hmm. Because they were made to go together. So seafood, shellfish, yeah. things like that from the south of France. It's just rosés. Perfect rosé. Oh, it's absolutely pairing. perfect. Yeah. Ah, uh, yum. Pink wine. Ah, uh, yes. Always delicious. Delicious. And definitely worth the drive to get to it if you have the means. So we had a bit of a harrowing day when we were visiting in France a couple years oh, ago. Oh, uh, the Chateau Pivernon. Oh, yeah. Chateau de Pivernon. A beautiful, just unbelievable estate. In uh, in Provence, just outside the town of Bandol. In the middle of nowhere. Yes. Slash the so there slash. were there were six of us traveling. <laughs> really hard to get to. Um and we were all crammed into yeah. a very Somehow we like didn't rent a van. Like I, I don't it know. It was like a thousand euro happened. for a week. It was for really the van. expensive. And then we were like, well, we won't need it for the whole time. And then we were going to rent one later for just a few days for when we wanted to do, like, day trips. And then all the vans were sold out. Yeah. And so we, so six of us ended up cramming into a little Peugeot, which if anyone a little knows. tiny European yeah, car. It's, I mean, imagine, like, six people crammed into a Corolla, basically. Yeah, pr- pretty Maybe much. a Hyundai Accent. I'm not sure. It, uh, it was tight. Probably shouldn't have had six people in the car. But we yeah. were going to a scheduled wine tasting at Chateau de Pibranon at a certain time and we put into the gps the address that was on their website because that was the address that was there (laughs) uh and we are driving we're driving we're driving we you know get off the highway get off the main road clearly driving through vineyards fantastic beautiful drive but like 
you know, we're and like, we're, oh man, this is like such a trek. And to we're kind of going place. up and up a mountain, essentially, yeah. like foothills. Well, yeah, it's like a, a large hill. Yeah, and the road's getting narrower and narrower and narrower, and finally the road stops. And there's like this concrete gate, gate, and like wall that says. Like, do not enter. No, no entrance here. Yeah, I think it did. Did it have the name of the vineyard on it? It did. It did. Yeah, it absolutely did. And and we're so like, we're um, like, what? This is so weird. So now we're on a road that we can't turn around on at a maybe like thirty percent grade, and yeah. we're like, okay, well, we need to back up to get out of this situation. So our driver, Max, <laughs> our friend, was, our not friend, our driver yeah, not that we hired, <laughs> he was driving the car at the time. He starts putting the car in reverse. And lo and behold, the weight of six people in that tiny car was too much, and we just start sliding backwards down this <laughs> gravel road. Uh, so naturally, we all panic. <laughs> we get out of the car. Poor Which Max actually, surprisingly, Max held kept it, it pretty cool, even though I'm sh- like he told us later that he was totally freaked out and panicked. But yes, so we all get out of the car. We help him turn around, and then we. S- <laughs> we- Kind of gather our thoughts again, and we go back to their website, and the people in the car who can speak French, then we read the website, and what it says is, do not go to this address, the only address listed on the, on website. the website. Instead, take these directions. And I don't remember them verbatim, but it was the equivalent of, uh, go to the bottom of the hill, turn left, uh, after three sets of power lines, turn slightly right into the field. It was like <laughs> yeah. wild directions. <laughs> But sure enough, they were perfect. We did follow them. They were and perfect. Yes. So we we did end up at the vineyard. We were an hour late for our tasting. We were an hour late for our tasting. They did not care at all about that. They oh, were, no. There's no. Super French about it. Yeah, there's no time. Nice. There's we no were time like, oh, my France. God, we're late. Should we still go? Um, but we did still trek through. And, and it was worth every second. And it was so great. Yeah. And yeah, we tried a bunch of different wines. We bought a bunch of their rosé and we had did. it for... The remainder of our trip, and then took a couple bottles home. Yeah, we took a beautiful great. bottle of red that we had on our anniversary this past fall. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was absolutely fantastic. Really good. So whenever I see Chateau Pivernon, I'm always tempted to buy it. You can find it in like a few specialty wine stores, but okay. it always reminds us of our, our harrowing journey uh, yes. to the Chateau. Anything for a taste at a winery. Yes, um, it was quite an adventure. It was, it was, it was. But I mean, really the point of all this is... Give rosé a chance if you haven't yet. It is a beautiful, beautiful wine. And there's really a rosé out there for everybody. It's very nuanced, and every bottle can be slightly different. Um, so get out there and, and experiment with some rosé this summer. It's going to be hot. It's really refreshing. Yeah, it's it's so perfect refreshing. for any occasion. Exactly. That's I'm Trevor's not, sales pitch for yeah, rosé. I'm paid by the rosé council <laughs> yeah. of, of the world. <laughs> the way I'm dressed right now, That's you might actually think I am. So. Yeah, you fit the part. I fit the part. So I had only a couple uh, resources for this because there is a fantastic article out there I've used before for other things. It's A Brief History of Rosé by Victoria James at guildsom.com. Just a really comprehensive Mm front-to-back history of rosé, but also concise as well. And also The Oxford Companion to Wine by Chances Robinson, the the be-all, end-all of of wine literature out there for sure. But but no, I'm excited. It's going to be a great summer. Stocked yeah. up on rosé, plenty to, to do, 
It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful season. Happy summer, everyone. Happy summer. Happy summer. We'll be back next week. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with a mini-sode of the podcast. Uh, But in the meantime, everyone, stay healthy. Be well. And we'll see you next time on Where Does This Come From? Thank you.